Enlargement of the heart is really a compensatory mechanism in, in order to fill the heart with more blood. If the per unit blood is reduced in its pumping capacity, one requires a much larger amount of blood in the vessel, if you will. And so the heart increases in size over time to try and keep the pumping capacity similar to the demands of the patient's body. And we have a picture showing the difference. It was showing the difference between the normal sized heart and uh, a diseased enlarged heart. And I guess this is another picture. Um, that's pretty dramatic. The one on the right, is that showing just how large the heart is? Yes. In fact, this is a chest x-ray of a patient with heart failure on the right side, where the heart is clearly two and a half times the size of a normal heart. And that's what happens with heart failure is a marked enlargement in the size of the heart. So while it's good to be big-hearted, I guess, um, having an enlarged heart is not such a good thing for your health. No, in fact, uh, and then luck. <laughs> okay, so you guys can actually get to see 
how dramatic that difference is, right? So it's nice to be able to actually see. And you guys can um, also see on the chest x-ray how dramatic it is. So this is a progressive disorder, and um, it's um, dysfunction in the left ventricle. So if you guys can remember your cardiac anatomy, um, the left ventricle is what pushes out all the blood to the rest of the body. So we have dysfunction in that left ventricle. And um, from the left ventricle, um, we can measure the ejection fraction. So that's the amount of blood that's getting pumped out from the left ventricle into the, um, to the rest of the body. So we measure um, the ejection fraction with an echo, an echocardiogram. That's the test that you uh, use to check ejection fraction. So for a normal patient, a healthy ejection fraction is about 50 to 55%. So half of the blood that is in the left ventricle is going to get pumped out. In heart failure, we have about 40% or less of the blood that's getting pumped out. So it's going to be less blood that gets um, sent out to the blood, uh, to the body. And that's going to decrease your cardiac output. And then ultimately, we have decreased organ perfusion. So our vital organs might not be getting the blood supply that they need. So that's your brain, kidneys, heart. Um, and then also you get um, volume overload because you have blood that's kind of getting backed up in the heart. So you can have volume overload um, and um, your patients might have pulmonary symptoms, so if that blood is getting backed up into the lungs, they might have shortness of breath, um, or they might have edema in their legs um, because of all that blood um, that's building up. <clears throat> so I have another quick video. We're going to go through a lot of these. So um, an imaging test that can be done to determine heart failure? Yes. One of the most important imaging tests is a non-invasive ultrasound of the heart uh, called an echocardiogram. And in fact, this is the, the most important test that patients can undergo for the diagnosis of heart failure. Shown here on this uh, graphic is an echocardiogram. On the left panel, you can see the very normal pumping of the left ventricle. It squeezes uh, wonderfully. On the right panel, you notice there's an enlarged heart and the muscle is hypocontractile or weakened in its, uh, in its pumping capacity. We also see a back leak of blood going towards the lung. Is in, that the blue the that we're seeing? That's the blue that, that we're seeing coming back into the left atrium, which is also enlarged in that. Uh, okay, you can see for the newer hospitals that have more up-to-date um, technology, there's that blue and red section that tells you. So you can see how he mentioned that the blood is going the opposite direction. So it gets backed up. Um, so um, now we're going to talk about the compensatory um, mechanisms that go on, and then we'll talk about how the drugs fit into all of these things. Um, so this whole process is driven by a neurohormonal system. Um, so the sympathetic nervous system, it rapidly gets activated when the body sends a decrease in cardiac output. And then that causes the body to, um, um, I'm right here at the bottom, um, to release norepinephrine. Um, and then that causes the heart rate and contractility to increase. So initially that's good because it helps the body keep up with the demands. But what happens in the end result is that you get that extremely large heart. So you have um, 
um, increased demand on the heart as it gets larger, as well as ischemia, and then that eventually leads to the remodeling that we talked about. Um, so when we talk about beta blockers, you guys did hypertension already, right? So when we talk about beta blockers, we'll talk about how they affect the sympathetic nervous system. So the next system um, is the RAS system, the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. And this should also sound familiar from your hypertension lecture. Um, so you have a decrease in cardiac output, and then you have that ultimately leads to a decreased renal blood flow. And then you have increased levels of renin that are going to get released. So um, this is a little diagram that I put in there um, in your notes. So angiotensinogen converts to angiotensin 1, and then you have the ACE enzyme that converts it to angiotensin 2, and then aldosterone. So that ACE enzyme, that's where the ACE inhibitors are going to work. So um, remember that when we talk about the ACE inhibitors. And angiotensin 2 causes vasoconstriction, and that ultimately also leads to the effects of remodeling. So we're going to use all these drugs to block these mechanisms that are going to uh, go on. The next thing is um, um, aldosterone, and this increases sodium and water reabsorption. So you're going to have increased levels of sodium, and remember that water follows salt. So if we're retaining salt, you're going to keep all that fluid on you. Um, and you also have um, excretion of potassium and magnesium. So when you have an uh, imbalance of electrolytes, um, your patient can be at risk for arrhythmias. So when we talk about the aldosterone antagonist, this is where that's going to fit in. Okay? Um, and then your end result with all of that is, again, the same thing. Um, those pulmonary symptoms of congestion, peripheral edema, and then hypertrophy. So our last, uh, our last pathophysiological mechanism is the neuro, um, the natriuretic peptides. And these are naturally released from our body when a body, um, when the heart is expanded. So when there's volume overload in the heart, the heart is gonna stretch. And these um, natriuretic peptides are naturally gonna be released from uh, the atrium, from the ventricle, and that is gonna help diurese the patient. So it causes diuresis, it's kind of like a diuretic effect. So it's our natural body trying to um, fight this off and get the fluid off of us. So ANP is released from the right atria, and then BNP is released from the left ventricle. And BNP is an important marker for worsening heart failure, acute decompensated heart failure. We look at BNP levels. Um, so these Again, they're going to um, cause uh, dilation of the veins and arteries, and then they promote sodium and water loss. So you have kind of similar effects to the diuretics. So you were saying that the ANP is released from the right atria, mm -hmm. and how about the BNP? From the left ventricle. watch the videos, some of them, they say more than you need to know, so just try to listen. You guys don't have to really remember everything from the videos. Failure occurs when the heart's pumping becomes impaired, resulting in inability to meet the body's oxygen demand. The most common type of heart failure, left-sided failure, occurs when the left ventricle cannot contract sufficiently. 
after load is the amount of resistance the ventricle pumps against. In order to pump effectively, the ventricle must generate sufficient pressure to overcome this resistance. Left heart failure occurs when arteries downstream constrict, resulting in increased afterload, resistance too high for the ventricle to pump against. A heart attack can also cause left heart failure. In a failing heart, blood accumulates in the left ventricle causing pressure. This pressure called preload causes the ventricle to expand. Increased preload worsens the ventricle's ability to pump. Accumulating blood stretches the cardiac muscle fibers, pulling myosin and actin filaments farther apart. When overstretched, myosin molecules cannot connect with actin. The myosin-actin crossbridges cannot swivel. The inability of the crossbridges to swivel makes contraction weaker, reducing the likelihood that sufficient blood will be pumped. The progression of heart failure continues as blood accumulates. Built-up blood in the left ventricle causes a backup of blood throughout the pulmonary circuit, leading to pulmonary congestion. This associated congestion is responsible for left heart failure, also known as congestive heart failure. Blood buildup in the lungs causes difficulty breathing, especially when a person is reclining. Pulmonary congestion also reduces the ability to oxygenate the blood, worsening systemic hypoxia. The progressive nature of congestive heart failure, if untreated, ultimately causes death. And in the video, you guys heard her refer to it as congestive heart failure. So a lot of the terms get a little confusing. And um, today, we try to avoid using the term congestive heart failure because not all of our, our patients are going to have congestive symptoms. So we try to just call it heart failure or chronic heart failure. Um, and then the difference between that and acute decompensated heart failure is when it gets worse and you're kind of in this emergency situation. Okay, so we have two classification systems for heart failure. The New York Heart Association classification system is a little bit um, older, um, but this is a two-way kind of system, so your patient can go from, say, class one to class three, and then they can also go backwards down to class one if their symptoms get better. And notice it's a functional classification, so it's going to be a lot about the physical activity for our patients. So class one, we have no limitation of physical activity. So pretty much our patient's able to function normally. And then class two, we get slight limitation of the physical activity. So they might notice that they're not able to walk as far as they used to. And then class three, we have marked limitation. So that starts to affect their daily living activities. And then class four, you're unable to carry out your um, your normal physical activities, day-to-day -day things without any discomfort. So they're usually bedridden at that point. Um, and the problem with this classification system is that it's kind of subjective. It's subjective to is the patient, um, it's what they report to you, right? So it poorly correlates with the ejection fraction. And remember, the ejection fraction is the most important marker that we have for mortality. So 
We have the newer classification system, which is the ACC AHA. It's the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association. And um, the American guidelines are based on this classification system. So um, even though this is newer, a lot of physicians will still use the older um, classification. So that's why it kind of just depends on who you're working with, how they refer to it. Um, but this is a one-way path, so once you go to stage C, you can't go back to stage A, unlike the other classification, because it's based on the structural changes. Um, so in stage A, you have, uh, you're at high risk for development of heart failure, but this pa these patients still don't have, they do not have structural heart disease or any symptoms yet. They're just at high risk. Stage B, this is where you have um, structural disease but no symptoms. So it's similar to New York Heart Association Class 1. And then stage C is where you have structural heart disease but you start to see symptoms. And then stage D is our end stage patient. So the reason why it's important to see these is because when we talk about our medications, we're going to talk about the difference between what everyone gets and what our symptomatic patients are going to get because the treatment's going to be a little bit different if they have symptoms or if they don't. Okay, so pretty much everything that I just said is background information. So when you guys are studying, you guys can review what we've done so far and understand it to apply the medications, but your test material is going to be from now on. So focus on the rest of this stuff, okay? <clears throat> okay, so now we're getting into our treatment. So um, usually our treatment is a combination of medications to block the different neurohormonal systems. So remember we talked about sympathetic nervous system and the RAS system. We want to target all of those different systems. And that's how the medications are going to tie in to work together. We also want to individualize our treatment for our patients. So we need to treat our patients specifically. So we're going to titrate the doses specific for our patient and a lot of these medications are going to drop your blood pressure. So we want to make sure that we're looking at our patient, making sure we're not bottom, bottom, bottoming them out, making sure they're not becoming hypotensive, and also looking at their renal function. So our objectives of treatment are to improve quality of life and reduce symptoms for our patients. We want to slow the disease progression. And we also want to prolong survival. So that's our main goal, is to get our patients to live longer and healthier lives. So some of the non-pharmacological things, these are almost as important as the drug therapy. So exercise, usually low intensity, and obviously it depends on your patient. So if some of our patients get exhausted just buttoning their shirt at end stage, obviously they're not gonna, you can't just tell them to go out and take a jog, right? But as much as, they can. So usually for our healthier patients, about 20 to 30 minutes of low intensity, um, maybe walking about three to five times a week. Um, and then diet is the most important thing. We need to um, really emphasize sodium restriction for our patients because remember, this is a volume overload kind of situation. So if your patient is eating 10 bags of potato chips a day, all that salt is gonna keep all that fluid on them. So no matter what we do, if we're giving them medications to get that fluid off, if they're gonna keep all that salt, keep all that salt in their diet, it doesn't, it's not gonna help them. So that's very important, okay? And that is a big reason why people get worse and end up in decompensated heart failure is just consuming a lot of sodium. 
Also, smoking. Yeah. Um, so, with with these, this, once that heart is two and a half times larger, like that huge heart, mm -hmm. that would be um, structure. That would be in the ACCA stage B, C, or D. Mm -hmm. But depending on subjective classification, where where that would be, right? Yeah. Then once that's that big, none of these medications are going to make it smaller, right? Right. So it's that's just dealing with it at that size. So that's why prevention is really important. So early diagnosis is very, very important, and all of these medications and compliance with them to prevent this from getting worse. <coughs> all right, because so the medications are just compensatory. They're gonna be blocking it, but once you get to that huge heart size, you can't make it okay. get smaller, right, yeah. thank you, thanks. Um, okay, so um, also, did I say smoking cessation? So smoking cessation is important. Um, and then immune vaccines are important. So because this um, disease can get exacerbated if our patients have uh, respiratory infections, we want to make sure they're getting an uh, annual influenza vaccine, right? You get the flu vaccine every year. And then pneumococcal vaccine is for patients that are 65 and older, our elderly patients that get that once a year. I mean, excuse me, once once, that's it. Usually after they turn 65, they need to get a pneumococcal vaccine. Um, and then there's different types of devices that they can get, so we're not going to talk too much about it, but the last thing, the LVAD, it's kind of like, um, it helps um, the, the heart pump blood if you get to the end stage, and it's kind of like a bridge to transplant. So just um, like he mentioned, um, once you get to that stage, there's really not much that you can do, and you might end up having to get a cardiac transplant by the time you get to that point. But obviously, we don't have enough hearts to give to everyone, right? So that's why we really want to use our medications before we get to that point. So um, this is the treatment recommendations. Um, so this is from the guidelines. And I want you guys to use this at the end when you guys are studying to put everything together. So here at the top you can see there's stage A, stage B, C, and D. And then I want you guys to focus here at the bottom where it says drugs. And then you'll see how everything fits in. But very quickly, you can see that the ACE inhibitors here, everyone will get an ACE inhibitor, right? And then um, as we progress on, we're gonna add on beta blockers, and then there's other drugs that we can use, the aldosterone antagonist, um, DIG, for the rest of our patients. And then diuretics will also come into play. So we're going to talk about all of these in more detail now. <clears throat> so our first drugs are our loop diuretics. <clears throat> and these work by inhibiting the sodium-potassium-calcium transport in the thick ascending limb of the loop of Henle. So it works on the loop of Henle. So you won't ever forget that because it's the loop diuretics work on the loop of Henle, right? Um, and uh, the thiazide diuretics, remember those are when they work on the distal tubule. So that's how you can remember where they work. Um, and these inhibit reabsorption of um, water and, well, salt, and then water will follow that. So you have um, decreased uh, pulmonary congestion and peripheral edema because you're going to decrease the preload. The preload is that volume of blood that's going to come into the heart. So when we're decreasing our blood volume, we decrease um, 
the amount of blood that's going to have to be pumped through the heart. So this is going to rid the fluid from our body. So the way that that works is our patient is going to be um, urinating to get all of that blood, uh, that excess fluid off. The thing I want to tell you is that um, the loop diuretics have better, they work better at diuresing our patients so they get more fluid off of our patients than the thiazide diuretics. So the thiazide diuretics are better at blood pressure control. So that's why you guys um, remember from your hypertension lecture, we use thiazide diuretics for almost all of our patients unless they have a compelling indication because they're good at blood pressure control. Loops are good at getting that fluid off. So that's why we use them more in heart failure. Um, so we're going to give these based on the symptom assessment of our patient. We're going to look at their daily bo um, body weight. So you guys can hear nurses um, on the cardiac floors counting the I's and O's, right, the ins and outs of our patient, checking how much fluids they're taking in and how much they're getting off. And that's how we measure how much fluid um, we're taking off of our patient. And the goal for this is to improve exercise tolerance and symptoms. So notice that there's nothing about mortality here. They do not decrease, um, um, they do not increase survival. So they're not going to help decrease mortality for our patients. They're only symptomatic uh, relief. So this is going to be for New York Heart Association class 2, 3, and 4, and then stages C and D. So two, three, and four, and stage C and D. So I'm going to quickly go back to this so you guys can see um, what I mean. So here you can see that the diuretics are here in stage C, and they're not in these earlier stages because our patients don't have symptoms yet in stage A, um, stage A and stage B. So that's what I mean by only symptomatic relief. So because they're not um, decreasing our mortality. If our patients don't have symptoms, they don't need to be on this medication, okay? So our considerations, um, we want to make sure that, um, that our patient is going to be able to um, be able to rid fluid on this. So the thiazides, they become ineffective at a creatinine clearance of less than 30. So that's how you measure renal function, the creatinine clearance, right? So loops work at a little bit lower, about 15. So if your patient has renal insufficiency, the loops will also, that's where they come in and have uh, benefit over the thiazides. And that's also for hypertension. If your patient has very bad renal function, we would choose a loop over a thiazide diuretic, but that's for the hypertension measure. Um, <laughs> um, so, we also, again, want to look at sodium, um, and our NSAIDs are medications like ibuprofen that you can use for mild to moderate pain. Um, when you're on NSAIDs for a very long time, they can cause fluid retention. So that's something we want to look at in our heart failure patients. If we can, can change them to maybe acetaminophen, Tylenol, for their moderate pain instead of being on something like Motrin or ibuprofen. Um, you also want to look at the practical management of urinary output. So remember, these medications are going to cause our patients to use the restroom. So we want to tell them to take it in the morning, right? And usually loops are dosed twice a day, so at least a couple hours before bedtime, so they're not getting up all night. Um, and you also have to think about their lifestyle. 
say if they're a truck driver or um, Dr. Sokolov probably mentioned if they're a homeless patient, they might not have regular access to a restroom. So you have to think about what this medication is going to um, the side effects and if that's going to fit in with your patient's lifestyle, okay? Um, so we need to monitor for volume depletion, uh, for hypotension. Also, we want to uh, monitor our electrolytes. And at high doses, the loops can cause ototoxicity. So that's toxicity of our ears. Um, and the way that we can prevent this is separating out the boluses. So instead of giving a huge dose one at a time, we can try to give it twice a day. And these are usually at high doses of IV medication. The ototoxicity is pretty rare, but it's still something that we have to um, kind of um, make sure that we're trying to avoid. So examples of this is furosemide, um, bumetanide, and Dr. Sokola, do you still have them only remember two? Yeah, that's okay. going to be the same, the same one that you have in your hypertension lecture. Okay, so I think I put the stars in there for you guys. Do you guys have them? Okay, so furosemide and bumetanide, unless Dr. Yeah, we'll Sokola check had, if it's the same one. had different mm -hmm. ones. So go with her on the stars, but I try to put in. Um, you guys are lucky because my students get to remember all of them. Um, so um, these all have a sulfa component. Um, so has anyone heard of a sulfa allergy before? Yeah, so all of these, um, furosemide, bumetanide, torsemide, they all have a sulfa component. So if your patient has a sulfa allergy, then we use ethacrinic acid. And that's also a loop diuretic, but it doesn't have the sulfa component. So this is for a life-threatening sulfa allergy. Like if they had an anaphylactic reaction or something like that, that's when we will use ethacrinic acid. And then um, when patients are on diuretics for a long time, they can start to have resistance to the diuretic. So even if they're still taking the diuretic, they might not be able to get that fluid off anymore. So what we do is we can add metolazone. So metolazone is a thiazide-like diuretic. It works very similar to the thiazide diuretics. It also works on the distal convoluted tubule, um, but it's very potent. So it's about 10 times uh, more potent than hydrochlorothiazide. Um, and we give a small dose of this um, on top of our loop diuretic, and that will help us. They work uh, synergistically because they work on different areas. So the loops work on the loop of Henle, metolazone works on the distal tubule. So giving them together, you have increased diuresis if your patient has resistance, okay? And for a lot of these patients that are so volume overloaded, we do have to sometimes add something else. So we talked all about the loops so far, and the loops, remember, uh, just to recap, they're only for symptomatic relief. And I want you guys to see this quick video on the mechanism of action for the loops. The sodium-potassium exchange begins, but the sodium deficit cannot be replaced by the sodium from the lumen. This blocks the overall reabsorption of sodium from this site in the nephron. The net result is greater excretion of sodium, chloride, potassium, calcium, and magnesium in the presence of the loop diuretics. The next site for diuretic action is the distal convoluted tubule. So I don't want you 
you guys to know everything about that, but I want you guys to kind of see that the ion, there's a lot of transfer of ion. There's a lot that's going on, but you guys can kind of get an idea of that. So now we're going to talk about the ACE inhibitors. I'm going to talk a little bit faster now because I think we started a little bit late. So let me know if I'm talking too fast. But the ACE inhibitors, they play a very key, key role in heart failure. So these are our prills, right? Lisinopril and allopril. And they block the conversion of angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2. So remember that ACE in that diagram, it's going to block that ACE enzyme. Um, and they cause venous dilation, which decreases uh, left ventricular congestion. And that'll decrease our afterload. Um, so afterload is the force that the left ventricle has to pump against in order to get that blood out of the left ventricle. And um, we use these in all of our patients. Everyone will get an ACE inhibitor that has an ejection fraction of less than 40%, unless they can't tolerate it or it's contraindicated. And the reason is that it improves symptoms, but also survival. So I underline survival in your packet. So that's important. This is our first drug that we're talking about that decreases mortality, okay? So everyone gets this, New York Heart Association, class one through uh, five and stage A through D. Everyone gets this because it decreases mortality um, unless they have a reason where they can't take it. So we want to monitor renal function because uh, ACE inhibitors can increase the serum creatinine. We also want to monitor potassium because they can increase potassium levels. Um, and we are going to look out for hypertension because Remember, they decrease your blood pressure, and by the time um, most of our patients, remember, are going to be on more than one agent that's dropping your blood pressure. So you really have to monitor blood pressure. And ACE inhibitors can also cause a dry cough. So this is not a wet cough, it's a dry cough. So if your patient has a wet cough, you're thinking more of like infection, something like that, like they have a respiratory infection. But if they have a dry cough, it can be related to the ACE because ACE inhibitors prevent the degradation of bradykinin. Bradykinin is a potent vasodilator, but it can also cause this dry cough. So if they have that, you can switch to an ARB. And we're going to talk about the ARBs next. But the ARBs don't ha um, increase bradykinin levels. So they work very similar to the ACEs, but you won't have that dry cough. You guys have to appreciate Dr. Sokolo teaching in this room because it's so much harder than being in the auditorium. But um, so the contraindications is angioedema. That can be an allergic reaction that some patients might have to the ACE inhibitor. So this is swelling of uh, the lips, the throat area, the, the tongue. And what we're really concerned about is that the swelling getting so um, bad that you're not able to get air. Um, so we're trying to really make sure that we're um, counseling our patients on this, and if they start to notice that they're having swelling, to immediately get to the emergency department. Don't wait because you want to make sure that you're protecting that airway. So this is something that's very important to counsel on, and it's more prevalent in African-American patients, so you want to make sure that you specifically um, target that patient population in the counseling. Also, with, um, pregnancy category D, in second and third trimester, so we're going to not give this to our um, pregnant females. And um, it's also contraindicated in bilateral renal artery stenosis. So I put stars next to lisinopril and 
and allopril, but just go with your hypertension nose. So here is a quick video on the mechanism of ACE inhibitors. <laughs> Angiotensin II is an oligopeptide that circulates in the blood of many animal species. It is involved in constricting the blood vessels, an event known as vasoconstriction, thereby increasing blood pressure. It is an integral element of the renin-angiotensin system, which includes both the kidneys and the liver. Angiotensin II is produced from two precursors, angiotensinogen, produced primarily by the liver, and angiotensin one. The enzyme renin released by the kidneys, cleaves the peptide bond between the leucine and valine residues on angiotensinogen, creating the 10-amino acid peptide angiotensin-1. Subsequently, angiotensin conversion enzyme, or known as ACE, find primarily in capillaries in the lungs, cleaves the peptide bond between histidine and phenylalanine, resulting in the 8-amino acid long peptide angiotensin-2. The active site of ACE, ACE, or angiotensin conversion enzyme, includes a positively charged zinc ion shown above. Each contribute to attracting the substrate, angiotensin 1 in this case, chemically to the active bonding pocket. While anchored in place, water can be introduced, resulting in the cleavage of the peptide bond as shown. A class of synthetically created organic molecules prescribed to reduce high blood pressure are known as ACE inhibitors. They function by preventing angiotensin conversion enzyme from creating the vasoconstrictor angiotensin II from angiotensin I. They perform this action by simulating the same bonding patterns exhibited naturally, a bonding pattern described previously. As a result, they often possess shapes and contain chemical charges analogous to those possessed by angiotensin 1. A competition therefore takes place between ACE inhibitors introduced into the body and naturally occurring angiotensin 1 due to the fact that both are attracted to the active site of ACE. By occupying the active site of ACE before angiotensin 1, ACE inhibitors effectively diminish the production of angiotensin 2. This in turn can help a patient suffering from excessively high blood pressures maintain control over the renin-angiotensin system. Our ARBs work very similar to our ACE inhibitors, but we're going to give the ARBs to our patients that can't tolerate an ACE inhibitor. So um, these are going to be given to everyone um, that has heart failure if they need an alternative to an ACE inhibitor. So that can be to, due to um, the dry cough or some other type of uh, reason that maybe they can't get an ACE. Um, the other time you can give an ARB is if your patient, um, if your patient is on an ACE inhibitor, on a beta blocker, everything for our standard treatment, and then we still are not stable, we can throw this on kind of last minute to try to uh, do our best to use all our, our medications. So kind of at the end, it's pretty rare to use it, but if you really can't do anything for your patient, that's when you would throw that on, okay? But the most common reason would be if they can't tolerate the ACE. So again, this improves symptoms and survival. 
Um, and the contraindications are um, or considerations. Bradykinin does not accumulate, so you're not going to have cough. But the thing is that you still have to be worried about ang angioedema. So if your patient has angioedema with the ACE inhibitors, there is cross-reactivity. So, um, yes, is there a question? Yeah. Um, if they do the same thing, but the ARDS have less of a side effect, why wouldn't they be prescribed before the ACE? Um, because most of the clinical trials that are done, they're done on ACE inhibitors. So that's why we have a lot of supporting evidence with the ACE inhibitors. Um, and they work similarly, but they work a little bit different on the, the exact scale. So that's why they don't affect the bradykinin. Um, but it's because all of the evidence is mostly on the ACE inhibitors. And they're more expensive. Mm -hmm. They're more expensive. Yeah, the ARBs are also more expensive. Yeah. Um, so with angioedema, you still can have the risk of cross-reactivity. So for the most part, you don't want to use it um, if your patient had a very severe reaction unless you really need it and you're in a controlled environment and inpatient setting where you can really monitor your patient. But you wouldn't just want to have your patient have this anaphylactic reaction to an ACE and then discharge them on an ARB because that would be uh, pretty dangerous. So the same things we're going to monitor, renal function, potassium, and hypotension. And these are our, uh, the TANs, so Losartan, Dalsartan. Our next class is the beta blockers. So to recap, we did loop diuretics, only symptomatic relief. We did ACE inhibitors, everyone gets an ACE, and then if you can't tolerate the ACE because of dry cough, you get an ARB. Okay, so now we're doing beta blockers. Beta blockers, um, you combine this with the ACE inhibitor. So everyone's also going to um, uh, generally get a beta blocker. And they work by con competitive antagonism of the adrenergic receptors. Um, they block effects of the nervous system activation. So the sympathetic nervous system, remember we talked about the increased heart rate, increased contractility, and that's how the heart gets um, so much larger. So that's, this is what the beta blockers are going to affect. They're going to decrease our heart rate and contractility. Um, and they also prevent the release of renin. So we give this to all of our asymptomatic patients with ejection fraction of less than 40%. So that's New York Heart Association class 1 through 4 and also stages B through D. Because remember stage A, that was our high risk patients. They still don't have heart failure yet. So everyone in the New York Heart Association classification will, will get it. And for the American um, classification system, it's stage B through D. So pretty much everyone because, again, they improve symptoms and survival. So it's that combination of the ACE inhibitor targeting the, uh, the RAS system and the beta blockers targeting the sympathetic nervous system. So that's why we did all that pathophys, okay? Um, and you also need to monitor for hypertension because these can uh, lower your blood pressure. Um, and then this is the important one I want you guys to remember. In worsening heart failure, so as if heart failure progresses and you get to that decompensated state, you never want to start a beta blocker in that state. So your patient has to be stable in order to start a beta blocker because in a decompensated state, um, you're trying to make sure you're getting enough of that blood flow to the body and the beta blocker is going to decrease your cardiac output 
even more. So in an unstable state, you never want to start a beta blocker. Um, so with acute decompensated heart failure, you can increase the dose of your diuretic. And then if they're already on the beta blocker, some physicians might keep them on it, but most will probably just uh, drop it off, like I said, but you would never start it in decompensated heart failure. Um, and then bradycardia, because it's going to work by decreasing your heart rate. So your patients will really feel, um, a lot of them will be tired, fatigued, because your heart is kind of, your body's slowing down. And um, when we, uh, if we decide to discontinue these medications, we want to titrate them down because if you abruptly discontinue them, you can cause rebound tachycardia. So your patient, their body might start pumping faster than it even did because it got used to that slow heart rate. Um, so we're going to slowly titrate this drug up, and then if we need to stop it, slowly titrate it down. And it can also mask signs of um, hypoglycemia. So if we start it in a diabetic patient, we want to make sure that they're monitoring their blood sugar a little bit closer than normally because they're not going to experience those normal <coughs> symptoms of, um, of uh, hypoglycemia. But they still will have the symptom of sweating. So all of the other symptoms they probably won't have, but they'll still have the experience of sweating if they're hypoglycemic. So at least you can let them know that. So now we're going to talk about the contraindications. Um, so it can cause um, symptomatic bradycardia. So your heart rate is going to get decreased, but if your patient doesn't have symptoms of that, then it's fine. But if they start to feel very, very exhausted, um, they might have um, orthostasis, getting up and you know sitting down, that's when we might need to cut back on the beta blocker. But if they're not having symptoms, then it's fine. Um, and then also severe reactive airway disease. So that's like asthma and COPD. Did you guys see that? Yeah, so remember that the beta blockers, um, they cause um, bronchoconstriction. So we're going to really try to pick our cardio-selective beta blockers. Um, but you still want to be careful and monitor COPD and asthma. Yes? How soon after administering uh, beta blockers would you see those symptoms that they really occur? For bronchoconstriction? Well, for, for, for the bradycardia, I mean, any of these adverse reactions, would um, they happen immediately? Yeah, well, right when you start to take the medication, once it kind of gets into your system, you'll start to feel that, yeah. Um, so examples of this are... Um, metoprolol, and there's um, two different type of salt substitutes for metoprolol. So there's that kind of immediate release and then that extended release. So just keep that in mind when you guys see metoprolol, there's two different kinds. Um, and then also carbate, or excuse me, atenolol, those are our two cardio-selective ones, metoprolol and atenolol. Okay, our next class is our aldosterone antagonist. So um, these are going to um, block the receptor site for aldosterone. And aldosterone promotes the reabsorption of sodium and water. So we're going to um, have retention of sodium and water when aldosterone is released. So we're going to try to block this because we want to get that out of our system. And these are also called potassium-sparing diuretics. 
So it's the same thing. It can be called aldosterone antagonist or potassium-sparing diuretic. So just keep that in mind. There's two classifications, and it's exactly what that what it kind of says. It spares potassium. So the other one, the other diuretics, they drop your potassium. So sometimes we need to give a, a, a potassium supplement if we give like hydrochlorothiazide or something. But for these, we have steady levels of potassium, so we don't need to worry about that drop in potassium. And they work by decreasing um, our preload. And they also work on angiotensin II, so they're going to drop our afterload. Um, so they work on a couple different receptors. They also have selectivity for androgen and progesterone. So do you guys remember from that basic, maybe the first day you guys were in this class when uh, Dr. Sokolo talked about selectivity and how a drug can attach to more than one type of receptor? So our main effect, we want it to get onto our aldosterone um, receptors, but it can also attach to androgen and progesterone. And that is um, when you can get uh, gynecomastia and sexual dysfunction. So that's uh, gynecomastia is like breasts in male that can start to develop, and that's because of these hormone receptors that cause that. Um, and that can be pretty painful. So it's something that you kind of have to um, look out for. Um, so our patients, this is going to be more selective in who we give this to. So our patients with a lower ejection fraction, less than 35%, and if they're already on an optimal dose of ACE and a beta blocker, then you would think about adding on the aldosterone antagonist. And these also improve survival. Um, so for these, the monitoring, you want to look at renal function. Um, there's specific cutoffs for renal function when you can start it and when you can't. And um, you guys don't have to know that, but just keep that in mind. And then um, for hyperkalemia, because it's potassium sparing, we can actually sometimes get too much potassium. Like the ACE inhibitors also increase potassium. So when you have all these drugs that are increasing potassium, that's when you have to think about that. Um, and then the breast tenderness or enlargement, that was the gynecomastia that I talked about. And spironolactone, so there's two drugs in this class, spironolactone and aplerinone. So aplerinone is much more um, selective for um, the aldosterone receptor. Um, I don't have everything that's in my pocket on the slide. So um, aplerinone is more selective. So you have less of those gynecomastia um, those hormone side effects with aplerinone than spironolactone, but spironolactone is generic. It's much, much cheaper than aplerinone, so that's why we pretty much give everyone spironolactone. It would be very difficult to kind of uh, justify to an insurance company why you're giving aplerinone, because on the mortality benefit, it doesn't have much difference. Okay? Um, and... Um, so you can also try to avoid the hyperkalemia with um, making sure that you're looking at renal function and then if they're on other potassium supplements, you can discontinue those. Yes. When Viagra was first released, or shortly after it was released on the market and there were the, the cardiac-related deaths, was, was that because these patients were taking those pills to offset? side effects of the 
death drugs? Um, I don't think so. I don't know anything about that. Do you know anything about that? Maybe they had hypertension. It's true, you know, maybe they were taking it in combination with hypertension, but... Because um... Viagra, it can also be used for pulmonary hypertension, mm -hmm. too, so... But I'm not really... I'm not sure about that. Um, okay, so... That was our aldosterone antagonist. So now we're going to talk about the nitrates and hydrolysis. Should we take a break right now? It's nine. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Can we take a five-minute break since we started late? Okay. So come back at nine five. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Thank you. 